The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. You're listening to Accounting Matters. I'm Adam Olson, Embark's National Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. This week, we're kicking off our latest series talking about the deals and M&A lifecycle transaction process. Over three episodes, we'll walk you through each critical phase of the process, talking about best practices and key elements along the way. And I won't be going this alone. We're joined each week by one of Embark's subject matter experts to share their insights and experience in their subject matter area. We'll be covering the first phase of the transaction lifecycle in this first episode, focusing on a company's decision to buy or not buy a target business. And while it may be obvious to state, most merger and acquisition transactions are never the same. As we'll talk about over the course of our series, more complicated transactions tend to take on different structures and depend on a number of different factors that can influence the complexity. These can include just the size of the transaction, any international or multinational considerations, employees in the target company, regulatory hurdles that may come across, financing considerations, and even just the relationship between the buyer and the seller. This week, I'm happy to welcome a new podcast guest to the studio, Drew Solomon, Embark's Transaction Services Practice Leader. Drew, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So just to get the conversation started, I know you you deal with this day in, day out. Um, deals is kind of your your second uh, language, I guess, is what you speak here at Embark. When a company's looking to acquire a business, though, like where's the first place they start? What are they what's the first thing they start thinking through as a company um, as they're as they're kind of navigating that path? Yeah, obviously, a company needs to define what its M&A strategy is. They need to establish that strategy and, and its means to you know, realize the vision. They need to review their current portfolio value against value creation and other strategic imperatives. And, and they need to really prepare for the future and whether that's multiple acquisitions, some sort of future exit plan. Um, but how are they going to achieve those goals and what they want to do, I think is the first step to really creating that vision for acquisition. Yeah. So once they've, you know, aligned on what their M&A strategy is going to be, then, you know, I think the next step is then obviously putting that kind of sentiment into motion and really looking for their target business, target companies they're looking to acquire. So from your experience, like what are what are ways that companies really go about kind of screening where the potential opportunities exist with those target businesses? Yeah, I mean, once once you've kind of set that M&A search criteria, oftentimes companies, whether they're corporates or private equity firms, I mean, they have their own groups de- dedicated to this, right? They've yeah. got corp dev, they've got business development teams on the buy side at private equity firms that are looking to help grow that strategy. So that's, you know, that's their job, right? Um, Each buyer then has its own investment thesis. And oftentimes each individual fund that maybe a private equity had raised has its own thesis as well. So they're looking for, you know, potential businesses to help, you know, increase profit margins, certain geographies, certain customer bases, maybe complementary product lines to help, uh, you know, complement 
things they're already doing. Um, and then from there, you know, once you kind of have that criteria, you know, then your, your preliminary discussions get started. Right. Okay. So, you know, oftentimes people, uh, may engage bankers or, or, or other folks to help them identify you're out in the market, you're receiving marketing materials and other things that, um, that will help assess potential opportunities. You're having meetings, high level meetings with management teams to understand what's out there. Um, and really gathering as much information as you can. Oftentimes, you know, when you're having these conversations with between buyers and sellers, you know, nothing formal happens at that time. Um, you're, you know, the buyers are trying to assess the fit. Um, you know, the, the sellers are also trying to assess fit to see how things may work together. And so it's pretty high level at that point, but then, uh, you're really starting to kind of start to dig into that once you kind of have these preliminary discussions. So after the preliminary discussions, let's say we then, you know, we've sorted through a number of potential companies that we're looking to acquire and we identify a viable target that we think is a good fit. We think it's a feasible transaction for, for us. What happens next then? Yeah. I mean, I think once you, once you have a viable target, sellers don't often like to, you know, just disclose all of their confidential information, sure. especially if it's a competitor or, or someone in the space. So, you know, oftentimes you'll see non-disclosure agreements signed. Once those agreements get signed, then the sellers are, are generally sharing more sensitive information to the prospective buyers. Um, and and allowing them a little bit more access so that they can get into more detail to make sure that they really understand the you know the value proposition per se for the transaction right yep. at that point you know you've probably heard of terms like letter of intent or indication of interest those are now where the prospective buyer determines that they're interested in moving forward with a the transaction they want to have uh you know, more detailed discussions, get access to more information. And they're often giving their at least first offer, right, to purchase that company. Um, you know, th those are non-binding um, and they kind of outline the significant terms of the agreement, but oftentimes things change throughout. Sure. And so it's at least, you know, that initial indication that the, the buyer is serious and here's what they think that that potential company is worth. And then from there, they'll get into much more deeper discussions through purchase agreements and things like that. Um, you know, these letters of intent often contain uh, exclusivity periods. So we may come to an agreement that says you are no longer allowed to talk to any other potential buyers for a period of time. Right. And generally you have that period of time to get through all your diligence. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, the, one of the more important parts of the transaction to make sure that you can gather as much information as you can before you obviously execute any sort of binding signed legal agreement. Right. So you mentioned diligence, due diligence specifically, which I know is a critical element um, of the transaction, gathering that information, helping uh, the buyer really ascertain whether or not this this makes sense. And I guess it, even, even for the seller as well, whether the, the deal makes sense from their side as but let's take a step back maybe for those that aren't familiar or haven't been through the diligence process. You know, maybe they're looking to make their first strategic acquisition as a company. Uh, what exactly goes on during due diligence? Can you kind of talk just high level, like yeah, what we're looking to achieve in that process? Yeah, I mean, with any 
M&A process, there's a level of risk and uncertainty involved with every deal, right? So as a buyer, one of the best ways to mitigate that risk is to get as much of an understanding of the target company as you can, yep. right? And and this is obviously important because once a transaction is completed, any issues that the selling company may have experienced or or now are now the buyer's responsibility, right? So you know this is where the diligence phase comes in, but essentially it's a it's a comprehensive assessment of all aspects of a target business prior to to closing the deal. Well, that's helpful. Um- so I know when we're thinking about due, due diligence specifically, it can come in a variety of forms. I think a lot of times people, you know, kind of default to the most, probably one of the most significant ones, which is the financial due, due diligence, which is where you, I know you play a, a critical role here at Embark, assessing, com- helping companies assess that. Uh, but what other forms of due diligence like also take place when we're kind of going through this by you know, decision as part of the deal process. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, men- mentioned diligence, mentioned like exclusivity periods. Like generally, yeah, there's way more than the financial aspect that happens in that period of time, right? And it happens across all of the targets' operations. So, you know, if you think about common areas that generally happens, you've got legal diligence, right? Reviewing contracts, licenses, regulatory issues. You've got operational and human resource diligence, right? Looking at the company's products, services, or technologies, the people function, you know, uh, just any, any potential HR issues and how they operate. Then you obviously have the financial diligence, which we can get into further, but you, you know, as part of that, you've got tax diligence, right? You've got, you know, people helping buyers focus on the company's tax affairs and ensuring that, you know, they identify the liabilities and understanding who's responsible and, and what that, may look like post-close with all of the different structures of those groups, right? So tons of information to get through, lots of different parties involved. Um, but all of that is kind of part of the, the diligence process. Right. So I know financial due diligence is kind of your bread and butter here at Embark. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about what actually takes place during the financial due diligence process and really why that's just so critical to overall deal transactions? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it involves a comprehensive and in-depth examination of the target company's financial records, historical performance, and just overall financial health, right? So the main objective during our financial diligence process is to assess the accuracy and reliability of the information, financial information mostly, that's been provided by the target to the potential buyer to you know, identify any potential risks opportunities associated with the acquisition. And we do that through, you know, an extensive data analysis and discussion with management teams and really understanding as much as we can about the business in the amount of time that we have. So we review various aspects of the company's financial position. It, it you know, includes fina- review of financials. We focus on certain areas like cash flows and working capital, uh, contracts, agreements, right? Like anything that you can think of that ultimately ends up, say, in a company's P&L or balance sheet. Yeah. So you're touching a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of questions, a lot of different stakeholders. And then I would imagine are involved here. Can, 
you give me kind of a picture of like who all is really at the table when it comes to like just going through the due diligence process, like what parties are, are present. There are always many groups involved in a transaction from both sides, right? So from the seller's perspective, you know, you may have investment bankers, you may have lawyers, you'll have the owners or the private equity firm or whoever, you know, is currently on the management team of the seller. Uh, they'll have internal accounting staff that have to get involved. You'll have other advisors. They may have sell side diligence teams. They may have auditors that get involved. Um, and then you may have even have other folks within the seller's organization, maybe the ops team, maybe the sales team, right? Like everybody gets involved. And then from the buy side, you know, obviously they have, there's, there's analysts, there's lenders, there's other third party providers. Like we talked about their legal teams and tax teams and HR teams You may have insurance that gets involved from a reps and warranties perspective. Um, they'll have investors who are obviously interested in, in the potential outcome of, of this and the value that it creates. So tons of people get involved um, and there's a lot of moving pieces. A lot of opinions I'm sure are <laughs> present during uh, the process itself. So if you're a buyer and you're kind of preparing for the due diligence process, you know, what do you have to keep in mind? What kind of conversations are you potentially having before you kind of start, you know, diving into your analysis? What does that look like? Obviously, the buyer has had tons of conversations with the sellers leading up into that point, right? Sure. So, you know, generally when we get involved on the buy side, it's not really until there's an LOI or maybe an IOI and some sort of an agreement between the two parties before they really open up the data flow and let other groups start looking, right? So they've been involved for a long time. They want to make sure that when they start spending money, that that there's something there worth spending money on. Right. Um, and they already have a good understanding of the business and, and where their potential value proposition may be or other synergies, right? How it's going to fit into their, to their thesis or overall investment strategy, right? So when they're ready to start spending money, you know, we as the third party providers, I mean, we, we try to understand as much about the transaction that we can, the key terms, you know, who the target is, what industry they're in, what's their track structure so that we can come up with a good scope when working with our client who, you know, in this case is the buyer so that we can tailor our work to what they need, right? So whether it's a certain period of time that they're interested in, certain areas of the financial statements that there may be potential issue, what kind of deliverables they need. So, you know, as an example, if a company's been through significant changes over time, you know, maybe the buyer is more concerned with a more recent period and, and, and not as much for, going for back. going back right. a couple of years. So we may shift to say, okay, like let's focus on this period so that you guys can get to that versus, or if a company is, um, you know, maybe they're in a business and the, and the deal is based on a multiple of revenue, say they're a SaaS business. Well, we would structure our analysis to where we're focused heavily on the revenue aspect. And maybe we spend less time in, in other areas that aren't as applicable to the transaction. So for us as the provider to, to is understand as much about the upcoming transaction that we can, the better so that we can tailor things and scope things accordingly. Right. Kind of back to the sentiment I made it just like, it's not a one size fits all approach to diligence, right? Just no. And it, you know, it's, they're, they're extremely fast paced. There's tons going on. You gotta right. be nimble, flexible. And so we work with buyers to help understand as much as they can based on what will help them ultimately. Yeah. So maybe just digging a little deeper here. Can you talk a bit more about 
maybe what you specifically, your team um, kind of does on the buy side and really kind of how you guys go about that? Yeah. So, you know, kind of hinted at it previously, but, you know, our one of our main focuses is, is really to understand the historical performance, right? So, you know, again, depending on the industry, that may take a few different forms, but, but ultimately, uh, w- we get as much financial information as we can going back for a period of time, right? And and we want to understand the business, any unusual items or one-time items um, to kind of help our client think about things moving forward. So like you said, we deal with a ton of data. Each company may produce different information. They're bound kind of by their system capabilities. And you have obviously more sophisticated systems and, and, and less sophisticated systems, but we gather as much as we can to do a deep dive into, into areas such as revenue, where we may look at customer activity, big gainers or losers, volume, price activity changes, what that impact has been elements of revenue recognition that may skew results if they're not done right. Uh, we understand the company's cost structure, right? We're looking at the nature of fixed versus variable. What's the labor cost doing? Other operating expenses, manufacturing expenses, if they're into, you know, if there's large inventory and, and, and manufacturing operations, are they accounting for these correctly? What's the impact on cash flows? Um, and we can do a deep dive into CapEx or AR collectability, right? Like you name it, we look into it or, or, or can look into it for our clients. And, um, you know, obviously having a deep understanding of say the accounting aspects and the debits and credits is important here on top of understanding the business as well, because right. it all impacts things. Right. So, um, you know, in addition to the, to the, just the financial numbers, right? We're helping them understand financial risks. So are there instances of fraud that may have occurred or areas that could be susceptible to that? Are there any undisclosed or contingent liabilities that may exist that maybe they're not accounting for that the buyer may be responsible for post-transaction? You know, we help them understand debt and debt-like items, things that could impact the purchase price. We want our client to understand as as much um, as they can to make sure that 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 they've got a great grasp on things kind of prior to close. And then finally, you know, another area that we can help assess with too is operational risks or either areas for improvement or, or synergy, right? Like what, what are their org charts look like for various functions? Are they missing people? Are they maybe too heavy in certain areas? What changes may need to be made post transaction that our buyer, that the buyer needs to be aware of? Um, and, and have there been any significant changes over the past couple of years that may indicate, you know, an issue one way or the other, um, that again, that they may need to be considering about, uh, post-transaction, maybe there's system issues that maybe need to be cleaned up, you know, will they be integrated well with the client, but the buyer post-transaction, what, what work needs to happen there? Um, and, and, and so all of these things we can do and often do to kind of help the the buyer understand and go through their diligence process. Yeah, let me just go back to you had mentioned data when you were kind of going through kind of the the deep dive there for a moment. Clearly, there's a ton of data that's necessary just to perform this diligence evaluation and analysis and all these different areas. And you just hit on some of the more key areas that you you play a part in. Are there any best practices that companies kind of utilize for how to best manage that process of sharing all this information that you see? Like what, what are we doing to help just streamline things here? 
Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, setting up some sort of like virtual data room is always best practice for both sides, right? So you can set up folders and 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 track requests and other information that maybe you need now, but you may also need going forward, right? So, um, you know, th there's requests coming, like I said, from all groups too, right? You've got the legal, you've got the HR, you've got the operational. So having having one central place to obviously house all of that is obviously best practice. I mean, there's tons of really great data rooms out there that provide all kinds of security and things. So that's obviously something important as well as, is monitoring, you know, who has access and things. So if it's a smaller deal, we've seen people use Google drives and obviously limit the access there, but then you've yeah. got a lot of different, um, players out there that, you know, they become more expensive, but they provide a lot more security, uh, a lot better ways of tracking and organizing and finding and searching for information as well. So obviously those can can be a little bit more uh, effective, but they obviously have a cost to them. Uh, but but whatever you do, you have to be able to track that information because I may ask you a question about it now. Right. And then I may, somebody may have a question about it three, three months from now. We got to be able to go back and find it easily right. to make sure that things keep keep moving forward yeah and just the rapid pace of requests and how things get shared back and forth i can imagine it's just yeah. a lot to keep up with um so just curious as well you know you've obviously done a number of these transactions um and you know a big part is kind of pulling back the curtain on companies a lot of times and and seeing different things um have you had you know i don't know if there's a story you can share just kind of a personal anecdote of just any type of significant discoveries that have come across, you know, some of the procedures that you guys have performed around diligence and how that, you know, potentially changed the structure of a deal, the outcome of a deal, or, um, you know, raised a red flag on something that, that stands out to you. Yeah. I mean, I think we could probably have an entire podcast on, <laughs> the good, on, bad, on, and the ugly. Yeah. On this that, you know, maybe people would like to listen to, maybe they wouldn't. Um, but I think, you know, obviously in a transaction, you know, both, both buyers and sellers, they love to get creative during mm -hmm. the sales process, right? Like whether it's, you know, coming up with ways for a seller to increase their EBITDA or, or maybe buyers, um, you know, sometimes to increase so they can get better, f uh, financing or maybe to decrease so that they can, uh, show, you know, the seller that they're giving them a great multiple for whatever it is. Right. But, but, that's generally where, where we come in as like an objective third party to, you know, uncover scenarios like that, 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 that may, um, that may not really tell the true story. Right. So, you know, recently we've seen a couple retail service-based businesses that apparently collect a lot of cash for services that they perform. And, and although those, that cash doesn't find its way to the bank statement, or the PL for as revenue, they're oftentimes trying to, you know, get credit for that, right? And so we have to kind of understand what's going on there. Um, you know, we've seen all kinds of personal expenses running through businesses lately. Um, we've seen all kinds of family members on payroll that maybe they don't have any operations in the day-to-day -day business. Um, we recently had to assist our client understand a set of financials that was built off of bank statements and credit card statements. Tough. So the seller <laughs> didn't even really have a GL and they had, they were combining bank statements and credit card statements to help build a PL. And as part of one of our cash reconciliations, we identified that the seller had left off 
an entire credit card statement from their analysis that was hundreds of thousands of dollars of expenses. And obviously when you take a multiple to that, right. it's a pretty significant change in value in our, you know, in the buyer's eyes and versus what the seller thought they had. Right. So those are kind of just some of the more recent things that we've seen here. Um, over the years and, and some of the things we've done too recently, um, you know, is helping our clients understand the purchase agreement and how the impact of networking capital definitions, indebtedness definitions, how it impacts things, you know, essentially on a dollar for dollar basis from a purchase price. So providing our insights and, and expertise in those areas um, are just some of the things that we've, we've done recently. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure some of the examples you're putting fourth or, you know, you're thinking about maybe smaller family owned type businesses, but I would assume even sophisticated companies are not immune to findings and stuff during diligence process yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd be surprised. Um, and then you have like large sophisticated businesses who are then looking at much less sophisticated businesses. And so right. sometimes we're kind of like the, the, uh, you know, link between the two to kind of get them speaking the same language because sure. they just assume everything is done the way they do it and it's not. And so helping bridge that gap between how they're doing it, how they, how the buyer thinks they should be doing it, um, is, is always, you know, an area that we somehow find ourselves in when, when dealing with kind of middle market based businesses. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So just kind of curious as well, how long do you would you say, and there's probably no right answer to this question, but just how long do due diligence type procedures typically take? You know, what can a company, you know, if you're thinking about whether or not you need to accelerate a timeline for a deal, for example, like what can they expect this to take, you know, time period wise? And then are there any things they can do to help kind of accelerate that or maybe streamline that process? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the question we always get whenever we're like scoping a new project is how long will it take? And, and I say on the buy side, we're kind of at the mercy of the sellers, right? Sure. So they have all the data, they have all the answers. So, you know, obviously if they have a motivated seller that wants to get through a transaction quickly, we can move as quickly as we need to. Right. But, but that pre-preparation or, or really lack thereof changes things. So what we see a lot of times too is, is, you know, you have sell side diligence gets done. So the seller may have a, a third party such as ourselves come in and, and prepare a sell side analysis that a lot of that information and kind of back to the data room conversation, a lot of that information is already ready. It's been looked at, it's been, you know, processed a bit. And so that helps streamline things and get it going. Right. But in this, in the situation where there's not that going on, I mean, depends on the complexity of the business and how much data and where it's coming from and how many different systems. Right. But that could take two to three months, but I generally say, you know, we try to keep things between four and six weeks on right. average just okay. to try to get through things. And that kind of aligns a lot with like exclusivity periods that we talked about earlier, 30 days, 45 days, 90 days, something like that. But it, it, it varies wildly, but we can move as quickly as the data is there. Okay. And then once, you know, your work is done, the diligence work is, has been completed, you know, how do you then go about just communicating kind of your results, what you found. Um, you mentioned, you know, think at the onset of our conversation as well as, you know, defining those deliverables that, you know, your, your clients looking for you, you know, what are some key deliverables that kind of come out of this uh, whole exercise? Yeah. I mean, obviously they can vary and, and we try to stay in real time communication with 
say our client on the buy side to make sure that they understand everything as it's happening. Right. But, you know, it, it really depends on the need. I mean, a bank may require a, a glossy PowerPoint report for lending purposes, or maybe the P the P team just needs all the data in a, in a digestible format for their modeling. Right. So, and that may be just an Excel based deliverable, right? So either way we can be flexible as to how we communicate that information, but generally there's always the Excel of all the detail. Um, and there's always a, you know, a write up of all of our findings and the adjustments and everything that we see. Right. And so, you know, we, 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 we communicate with, with monthly information as granular as, as it can, but as part of that package, right, you've probably heard of something called a quality of earnings, right, where yep. we're assessing historical EBITDA on an adjusted basis. Um, and, and really that helps our, our clients understand the approximate cash flows of the target, right? We may present pro forma adjustments in there or synergies that the buyer may realize post-transaction, but either way, we're trying to come up with that historical adjusted EBITDA number. We'll present... Um, recast P&Ls to show the impact of those adjustments and what they would have looked like on the, on the business. Um, and then, you know, we, we try to write up everything so that they, they, they know what's in there. Um, we also, you know, detail out historical networking capital and adjustments to working capital for purposes of understanding targets and pegs for setting for their purchase agreements and, and ultimately what the client uh, the seller needs to deliver post trans or at transaction. Um, and, and really our reporting can, can, can include a lot of documentation, a lot of narrative around the business. It really just depends on, on what you need as a buyer, what's going to get you comfortable. Right. And then what do you want to know post transaction about the business to, to be able to then take that business and move it forward. Yeah. I imagine there's a lot that goes into y'all's deliverables. Um, you know, obviously varying depending on the size complexity of the transaction itself, like we've talked about, but maybe just to close this out for the conversation for today on, you know, this part one of this series here, just a quick rundown, just recapping some of the most common challenges that you've seen in your experience that arise during kind of the diligence process that potential buyers need to kind of you know, keep top of mind or be aware of, and then maybe just some best practices or helpful tips they can take away that, you know, they can utilize to overcome some of those challenges if they're going to be navigating this space at some point. Yeah, no, good question. I mean, I think, I think first and foremost, like knowing which questions to ask, right? So like, especially as, as say a buyer is, is, is looking at potential opportunities, even before they bring in all these other third parties, you know, having a good understanding of the industry is super important, right? We talked a little bit earlier about, you know, maybe a, a technology based business would have different questions to ask than a manufacturing business. So, sure. so knowing the questions to ask, knowing the industry, I think is super important. Obviously, you know, lack of communication always, brings things down, slows things down. Right. So even willing sellers, I mean, it's, it's a long drawn out process. And so if you're not on it regularly, you know, a lot of these sellers have day jobs to run their business. Right. And so what we oftentimes find is if there's lack of communication, the buyer's not getting what they need. There's some friction there. You know, we call it deal fatigue right on both sides, but definitely sellers deal with that a lot more. Maybe it's the second transaction that they've been through to sell the same business. And so communication is obviously important. I mean, lack of expertise, 
um, it, you know, is a challenge and, and, you know, people that haven't been through transactions before on either side, uh, you know, engaging advisors or third party experts is obviously important and can, can help with that as well. Um, there's obviously cost challenges, right? So, you know, diligence can be expensive, right? Yep. Lawyers charge a lot of money, you know, everything costs money to make sure that that transaction closes. And so having, you know, having that commitment up front is really important to be able to get through the whole process. Um, you know, best practices start early, right? Like involve various experts and advisors in the field as early as you can. Maybe you're not under LOI yet, but you think you might get there, like have a conversation about maybe what they need to be thinking about just at a high level as they're going through that process. And then that way, once maybe they do get under LOI, you can hit the ground running. We talked about like data management softwares and things, keeping track of your data, virtual data rooms, maintaining organization throughout the process is obviously really important. Uh, you know, utilizing checklists and other things, you know, request lists, tracking all of the open information and questions back and forth between the buyers and sellers, you know, is an area that we see, uh, you know, successful transactions really have a great handle on just the organizational aspects of that. And then, you know, like I said, employing experts, you know, hiring M&A professionals, whether it's investment banks, diligence firms, lawyers, and making sure that, that you've got enough eyes on it to mitigate all the potential risks that are out there. Yeah. No, that, that, those are great tips there for sure. And, you know, I think we've got a pretty clear picture of just kind of what all goes into this first kind of phase of the deal transaction life cycle. Drew, want to thank you for joining uh, me in the conversation today. I uh, appreciate all your insight and experience there. Uh, up next in the series, we'll look at what happens once a target company is acquired and how companies can look to integrate, streamline, and grow their investment. For more current developments on all things accounting and reporting, regulatory compliance, and sustainability matters, check out our weekly podcast, AM Now, on your preferred listening platform. Again, I'm Adam Olson, and thanks for joining us on another episode of Accounting Matters. We'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.